0: This morning, though, we're going to be continuing in our series to so the book of Acts. We're currently in Paul's third missionary journey. Um, he hasn't done much journeying at this point, as I think the entire time we've been in his missionary journey this time, he's been in Ephesus and this morning. He will still be in Ephesus, because there's a lot going on there um, in Ephesus. So, um, last week, Justin brought us the word. He brought us... Um, this story about the sons of Sceva these ma- and these magicians and the focus on the dark arts and magic that the people of Ephesus had. And it was amazing because the Lord, in His grace, confronts um, these people and shows them Himself, shows them His power, and we see an amazing Revival where all of these uh, uh, wizards, these magicians, these um, people practicing magic burn their stuff and turn from it to the living God. Pretty amazing, but this week we see that there's been a little bit of a uh, a shift um, in Ephesus that's happened as a result of this, and so today we're going to look at the aftermath of this amazing revival. So, If you would like to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, we're going to be reading verses 21 until the end, um, or you can read along on the screens. I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Let's see what happens next in Ephesus. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Sorry, I started early. About that time, there arose no little disturbance about the way. The way being Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith. I'm reading from the wrong version. Let's go ahead and switch to the version you guys can all see. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew... They all shattered in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here that they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said that, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that um, even this historical event, we can can see your power um, and your glory um, and uh, the way that you change lives and hearts. I pray, Lord, this morning you would do the same for us. Tell this in Jesus' name, Amen. So I'm going to spoil a movie for you, and I think that's okay for two reasons: one, the movie's 18 years old, and two, the movie is not very good. So if you haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry, but I'm going to spoil Ocean's Twelve for you this morning. Ocean's Twelve is one of the um, one of the Ocean's movies. Uh, so these movies following the story of Danny Ocean and his team of thieves as they work these elaborate heists to steal money or uh, valuables from various people. Um, And uh, they're they're exciting movies. The worst of them is Oceans 12, but it works for our illustration this morning. So um, in the movie Oceans 12, Danny is trying to steal the Fabergé egg, but he's in competition with the night fox, a French thief, and they're both competing. They've made a bet, actually, over who could get the Fabergé egg. And the movie twists and turns, and like all the Ocean's movies, you don't really know what's happening until the end, when the Night Fox comes to George Clooney's Danny Ocean and says, well, you've lost. I have the Fabergé egg. And we see this flashback of the Night Fox jumping between all of the lasers to grab the beautiful Fabergé egg, and to keep it for himself. And so he's like, Danny, you lost the bet. And Danny, with his wry smile, looks at him, and all of a sudden, the night fox's smile starts to go away because he realized he'd been had. You see, before it had even been put in the museum, Danny and his team had switched, had replaced the expensive, beautiful Fabergé egg for a fake Replacement. A replacement that was worth nothing at all. So in fact, Danny Ocean and his team had won. The egg of immense value had been replaced with something of no value at all. This is what idolatry is. Our topic this morning is idolatry. Idolatry is when we replace something invaluable, something with extensive value, For something of no value. Something that we think is going to give us what we want. That is actually unable to do so. John Calvin, the reformer, the Swiss reformer, once said, Our hearts are perpetual idle factories. We're constantly churning out fakes. Churning out things that cannot give us what we want. And yet we continue to ask them to do so. Demetrius, our silversmith, our friend in this, in this passage, has a literal idol factory in the city of Ephesus. He makes little shrines to the goddess Artemis. And that's a big deal here in Ephesus because Ephesus is the home of Artemis. One of the original seven wonders of the ancient world was the great temple of Artemis, this gigantic Greek-style temple Um, that um, was located right there in Ephesus. And it housed the statue of the goddess Artemis and apparently was where she lived or where she was worshipped. And so people from all over Asia would actually travel to Ephesus in these pilgrimages to worship the goddess Artemis. And they would come bringing uh, their worship, bringing their gifts in hopes of Artemis giving them stuff. And then when they left Ephesus, they would leave with a little piece of Artemis, a little shrine made by Demetrius or one of his friends, in order to bring the gifts of Artemis with them wherever they went. A little small version of Artemis. And so Demetrius was the one who made these. And guess what? It was a pretty good business because all these people would come in. It's probably about like the business of whoever makes like, you know, all that stuff you see in the Candelaria where they have like, The exact same things in every single store. Whoever makes those is making a killing because they're selling them everywhere. Um, This guy is selling his idols. People are buying them, making tons of money. But all of a sudden their business is declining. And he thinks it's because of Paul. Um, Here's the thing, though. This is idolatry. Now, we tend to think we're not as unsophisticated as they were because we don't go and we don't by idols, right? We don't worship idols. I don't pray to an idol. Um, I don't have idolatry in the same way that they did. But let's be honest, even they weren't really concerned with the idol itself. They're not worshiping the metal object. What they are worshiping is what they think Artemis, or the little miniature Artemis that they have in their house, is going to give them. You see, Artemis was the goddess of the hunt, She was the great God who would help provide for the people when they needed it. So when they went to Artemis, they weren't really wanting Artemis. They were wanting what Artemis offered, which was happy hunting, Um, provision of the food or necessities or prosperity that you need. She was also the goddess of both childbirth and chastity. I'm not sure how that works, but she was also the one that you would go to if you wanted to have a child or if you wanted blessings on you, apparently, for being chaste. So they weren't looking for her. They were looking for what she had to offer. And they were asking that idol to provide their satisfaction, to provide what they needed. In fact, Demetrius himself isn't actually concerned about the goddess Artemis, although he seems to say so at one part, one point. He is concerned what about what? His money. His money, his business, his uh, well-being in terms of his financial status is being challenged by the way, by Christianity, and he doesn't like it. The God, his idol is being challenged. The God of the universe has been offered to him. He has heard Paul speak. He has heard what Paul, this living God that Paul talks about, but he doesn't want that. He wants his money and his wealth. See, idolatry is replacing the real Fabergé egg for the fake one. As Tim Keller puts it, idolatry is asking something, that only God can give, asking for something that only God can give from something that is not able to give it to you? Idolatry is asking, from, asking for something that only God can give from something that is unable to give it to you. They were asking for their hope from Artemis. Artemis was unable to give it to them. They were asking Demetrius is asking for his security, his contentment from his money, but that ultimately could not give it to him. Our hearts today, in the same way as perpetual idol factories, are perpetually seeking our contentment, our self worth, our value, our security in things that are unable to give them to us. And so this morning, we're going to look at idolatry, and particularly our two points this morning are the identification of idolatry and the confrontation of idolatry. Identification of idolatry. How do we identify what our idols are? Uh, A week or two ago, I went downstairs in our apartment, we have two floors, and I went into the room that my two toddler sons share, and I smelled something, which is not unusual, but this time it was something burning, which is not something you usually smell in their room, and uh, it smells like, I don't know, like something unnatural is burning, should not be burning, there's no burning smell should be coming from my kid's room. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's out in the hallway. No, maybe it's coming from near their window. No, it's in their room. So I'm looking around and I can't find anything burning. I'm like, there's no smoke. And so I call Kelly down and she's like, oh, look, we look up and on the light bulb in their room is this simmering blue goo that is frying on the light bulb. You see, my sons, being the curious kids they are, had taken a pool noodle and stuck it on the hot lamp until it had melted onto there. And so a little bit of the pool noodle, the foam up there is melting and stinking up the room. Fortunately, it wasn't really dangerous, but it was clearly a burning smell. The problem when I walked downstairs that I had was not that it smelled like something was burning. That's not the actual problem. The actual problem is the stuff that is burning on there. The smell is not the problem. The problem is what is actually burning. Same thing with our idolatry. Our idolatry, the real problem, is the idol underneath. But sometimes we are made aware of the idol by looking at the symptoms that are caused by it. There's a lot of symptoms that our idols produce in our lives, in our hearts, in the ways that we, they expose themselves externally. But this morning, from this passage, I want to look at two in particular. First, I want to look at our anger. And two, I want to look at our anxiety. Uh, anger is the first one we see in this passage. You see Demetrius and his friends, uh, their idol is their own wealth and prosperity. We know that because he says it very clearly in the first few verses of this passage. Their wealth and their prosperity has been challenged, has been threatened by the way, and they are demanding it back. And so what is the symptom that shows up as a result of their idolatry? Well, look at verse 28. When they heard this, meaning the people who are there listening to Demetrius, when they heard this, that their money was being threatened, they were furious and began shouting. They were furious. They were angry. They were lifting up their voices in violent protests. They were rioting. They, were, they couldn't handle the fact that something that they thought they needed was being challenged. What makes you angry? What do you get angry about? Now, I'm not talking about righteous anger. Jesus gets angry, so obviously not all anger is bad. There is righteous anger over injustice and Uh, people being hurt, Um, there's those kinds of things. But I'm not talking about that kind of anger. Because most of our anger isn't righteous anger. I'm talking about the anger that comes from not getting what you want or from having something you really feel like you need be challenged or threatened When we look below the hood of our anger, we often find a demand for something. A heart that demands something. What sets you off? If you identify the symptom, if you take a moment for self-analysis, I think you'll find that you are either demanding something from something or someone, or there's something in your heart that's being threatened something that you feel that without you cannot have peace or contentment or joy or safety or value or whatever it else you're really craving. When you identify that thing, that is an idol. That is an idol and that thing, whatever it is you're demanding of, cannot provide what you're demanding of it. It cannot give you what you want it cannot protect you from the threat against it It cannot do it now this may take a little work on your part on our parts a little self-analysis but this is my encouragement to you the next time you're angry maybe after you cool down a little bit take a moment to do a self-inventory in my anger what am i demanding what feels threatened in my heart When my wife or my husband or my co-worker or the stranger on the street or the stock market um, or my kid, when they do that one thing, why does it make me so angry? What is it that's being threatened? Is it my self-worth being threatened? Is it my control? Is it my reputation? Is it my wealth? Is it my freedom? What is being challenged? Identify that. Find an idol. Shows you what your heart really worships. Not only anger, but also anxiety helps us identify our idols. Um, There's this group of characters that perhaps you didn't notice as I was reading. I didn't notice them the first time. But there's apparently at this protest in the theater, um, it says the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. So you have this protest going on, and then in the middle of the crowd somewhere is a group of Jews. Um, The Jews would have been like the religious Jews, um, followers of the Old Testament law, Pharisees, right? The Jews in the crowd get get worried, because all of a sudden everyone's angry, and they're angry at Paul, and Paul's kind of like a former Jew who's now a Christian, and they're going to... confuse Christianity and Judaism so all of their anger is probably about to come towards us right so we got to make sure we got we got to plan we got to control this we got to manipulate the situation right to make sure that no one confuses Christianity with Judaism because yeah sure the Christians can have a bad name no problem but we've got to protect ourselves we have got to control and manage ourselves you sense a little bit of anxiety with the jews as they say it says this the jews in the crowd pushed alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him so you can kind of picture the scene alexander's going up there to try to talk to this gigantic crowd of angry people and they're like hey say this hey say that hey make sure you say it right um and he says starts to talk they shut him down it doesn't really work doesn't really provide them the, the, what they want, but it does show us a little picture of anxiety, right? Our anxiety encourages us to want to try to control or manage our situations. Why? Because we are afraid of losing something. We try to control or manage to avoid losing something. Something that we are depending on for our value, for our peace, for our contentment, for our joy, for our safety. It's the things we obsess over, the things we dwell on. I'm not talking about the good kind of anxiety that protects your life. I'm not even talking about the uh, type of anxiety that's clinical where you just feel anxious because of an uh, imbalance of chemicals in your brain, not because you're actually anxious about in, anything in particular. I'm talking about the thing that you are so afraid of losing that you obsess over, that we obsess over not Of controlling and managing, right? Or that we maybe in our anxiety we try to run away from and escape from. If you can identify that thing that you are afraid of losing, you will find an idol. What are you afraid to lose? What are you obsessed over controlling or managing? Is your family? Is it your health? Is it your money? Is it your relationships? Is it your safety? You think that some one of those is going to provide you what you need? You're going to find an idol. Here's a side note. Sometimes our idols, as you're kind of looking for them, as you're kind of trying to identify them, it's, they're difficult to identify because we have consi- convinced ourselves that our idol isn't an idol at all. Rather, it's a virtue. Idols aren't idols. They're virtues. That's exactly what Demetrius and his friends are doing here. They start off by being pretty honest. They say, you know, my friends, that we have received a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. All right, you start off with him being pretty honest. This is impacting my business. I don't like it. But then he kind of switches here, and he makes it about something else. He says, well, and, uh, well, there's great danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess who, herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. He puts his virtuous tent to his idolatry. He's saying, hey, this isn't about me, really. This is about the goddess Artemis. And the goddess Artemis wasn't just a religion. This is the, the public symbol of our town. So this is the symbol of patriotism for all of Ephesus. So he makes it about civic pride and patriotism and being a good citizen when really he just wants his money. I think we do the same thing. I think sometimes we have an idol that we've disguised as a virtue. Let me give you a few examples. This is not exhaustive. Imagine that you want people to see how hard you are of a worker. You're, You're a good worker. You're diligent. You get things done. You're a problem solver. But really, you're just hiding over workaholism. A desire to just find your identity and your meaning and your life completely in your work. But you've convinced yourself it's a virtue. Maybe um, it's relationships, right? Like, oh man, you're just such a loving person. You're always the person there for the person who's struggling. You're always saying kind things. You're always being super thoughtful of other people. You're a nice person. But Deep down, you have this deep, this idol of other people's opinions, of other people's approval of you. You've got a savior complex, maybe. You want to be seen as the person who has all the answers, who can fix people. You're you're deeply... Uh, connected, you're deeply enslaved to other people's opinions of you. You can even do this with religion, even Christianity, even coming to church, knowing your theology, having all the right answers, making sure that you have, uh, you know, you've got the theology right. You even talk about grace all the time. You go to church every day, you read your Bible, you know your Bible back and forth, you study, you pray. That's great. But is it is there maybe underneath an idol of needing to be right? Needing to be holy, needing of on your own merits, needing to be self-righteous, or needing to be seen by others as being righteous. You're an idolat you have an idolatry of other people or your own self-perception that's going to that's going to make you feel content. Or okay. Let's be honest. Let's be honest when we look at ourselves. In order to identify our idols, we not only have to look at the external, but we have to identify the motive. What are our motives for doing things? And the reason we identify them is so that we can repent. That's what God calls us to do. He calls us to be people who repent, who look at our hearts and say, Oh, wow, I just noticed that. Lord, forgive me. Help me to change. And that's what God does. God comes in and he confronts our idols. So that's our next point. He confronts our idols. Um, We can't confront our own idols. That's the problem. We can't really confront them ourselves. Our idol factory, our heart, is constantly turning out idols. And if you've ever tried to get rid of like one idol, how quickly did your heart start coming up with another one? Happens so quick. Our, our hearts constantly are producing new and new idols, ones that replace the old ones. In order for our idolatry to be confronted, we need God to confront the entire factory. We need God to confront our hearts. Let's look at what the town clerk, the city clerk here, says um, to the crowd. I think we get a couple things from what he says. He makes a couple good points to the crowd. But actually, if we think about them, help us understand a little bit about what God is doing here in Ephesus. The city clerk comes up for the crowd, he quiets the crowd, and he says, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. Let me put what he's saying in other words. In other words, hey guys, Artemis is awesome. She is great. We've got this huge temple here. She is so powerful. And so we don't have to worry about it. If she is so powerful and she is so great, we don't have to worry about this little the way message that Paul is is teaching. We don't have to worry about Christianity because Artemis will show us her power. We don't have to worry about it. Chill out. Two, He says this, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. He's saying, hey, also, Paul and his companions, his friends, they're not the ones stopping your business, okay? They're not throwing strikes. They're not damaging your businesses. They're not damaging the temple. They're not robbing the temple of its glory. They're not doing any of this. They're talking about their own little thing. They can go do their own little thing. But if Artemis is powerful, and they're not doing anything, why are you here? Okay, that's the point that the town clerk is trying to make for them. But there's a little bit of irony in what he's saying, because first off, Artemis is not powerful. Right? He's claiming if Artemis is powerful, then we have nothing to worry about. The thing is, Artemis is not powerful. And Within 300 years of this happening, the worship of Artemis would be in severe decline. And not only that, but the temple of Artemis, the great wonder of the world, would be smashed and burnt to the ground. It'd be gone. I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone today who's worshiping Artemis. God, in the sovereignty of history, has shown that the idol that they have does not have any power. It cannot give them what they want. It cannot give us what we want. God smashes the idol, reveals that they do not actually have any power. And the second thing is that Demetrius isn't losing his business because of Paul. Why is Demetrius losing business? It's because of the power of the gospel. It's not because of Paul. It's not because of his companions. It's because the Holy Spirit is changing hearts. He is showing them the real Faberge egg. He's saying, all this, the things you've longed for, they're not going to be found at Artemis. They're not going to be found at these other things. They're found here. He's showing them the real thing. And when they see the real thing, the fake thing loses its luster. Their hearts are being changed. This is what happened last week as as God reveals his power to the many people doing witchcraft and uh, messing with dark arts in Ephesus. They see that what they've been doing doesn't actually have true power. But Jesus does. And their hearts are changed. And they burn all of their old idolatry. Hearts are changing. Paul isn't isn't confronting Artemis. God himself is confronting Artemis. And showing, you don't have power. I do. And I have the power not only to destroy you, but to change hearts. I'm changing the hearts of these people. They're seeing the good, what's good. They're hearing the good news of Jesus. And Jesus is replacing their hearts, their idol factories, with a heart that's focused on him. Also in my house, aside from burning pool noodles, I have a toilet that does not work. Our toilet in our downstairs bathroom uh, constantly runs. You guys know the sound when it's just like, you walk by the bathroom and it's going, like, okay, something's wrong. So we've had the guy, uh, the the you know, the, the guy who comes to our house to work on things. He's come, Carlos has come a few times, and he is he's tried to look at the inside of the toilet, and he's tried to mess with the mechanisms a little bit, he's tried to fix it, but the problem is there's like some sort of hole in it or something, so it's constantly leaking. It's leaking nonstop, over and over again, just leaking, leaking, leaking. It can never fill. It can never get full. And it doesn't matter how many times he's tinkered with it. He's tinkered with it three different times. It doesn't matter how many times he's tinkered with it, it still isn't fixed. What needs to happen? The entire internal mechanism needs to be replaced. Because the one that it has never gets full. That's the story of our hearts. Our hearts are like Toilets. No. Uh, our hearts need to be replaced. They need to, we need to take out the idol factory that is in there. We don't need to. God needs to take out the idol factory that's in there and replace it with a heart that is focused on Him. And that is what the story of Scripture tells us He is doing. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, He says our hearts are being renewed to want Jesus more and more and to want idols less and less The idol factory is being remodeled. It is being renovated. It is being replaced for something better. And in fact, it's actually on the cross that Jesus ultimately accomplishes this. Because on the cross, he dies. But then he raises from the dead. He rises from the dead to show that he, not anything else, not our sin, not our shame, not our idols, none of it has power. He has power. He has the ultimate power. And he is going to give it to us. He's going to change our hearts to make us long for him. And as he changes our hearts, guess what? Hearts actually start to fill. And the things that we want our idols to give us, we find are actually met in him. In him we find peace, true peace, that passes understanding contentment that passes beyond our circumstances. We find eternal safety and security in the arms of Jesus. And we find love and value an unending and never surpassed love and value that comes from the God who created you. So what do we need to do? We need to repent from our idols and we need to ask God to change our hearts. And it calls us to desire him more and more. Let's do that now. Father God, I pray, Lord, that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would be changing them. You would be causing them to to stop running to other things that cannot give us what we want, what we need. But make us see you. Make us see that not only you provide what we need, but you are what we need. You are the fulfillment of what our hearts long for. Help us to see it. We need it. And we can't make ourselves see it. We need you to do it by the power of your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbota.org.